0: Okay, tonight my topic is going to be dealing with the Catholic Church in the Tribulation Period. Uh, one of our proof texts will be dealing with second th- uh, Revelation 2, verses 22 and 23, where it says, Behold, I will cast her, speaking to the Church of Thyatira, into the sickbed of Great Tribulation, which is the second half of the Tribulation Period, and I will kill her children with death. Now that is a powerful uh, quote there from to a church in the Bible so we're going to try to figure out what does that really mean and uh, it's very powerful so we're going to take some time to look at that tonight so we will be doing a study tonight on Revelation chapters 2 verses 18 through 29 I will go ahead and uh, include the verses for you on the screen if you want to turn to your Bibles you can as well tonight we're going to talk about the letter to the church of Thyatira it'll be a Bible study but with modern-day application and future prophetic application, dealing with the tribulation period. This letter to Thyatira contains 12 verses. Five of them are devoted to severe condemnation. These are things that will go over that you would not want any pastor, especially Pastor Tom used to hear, about his church. And yet it's, it's dealing with a church, prophetically speaking, that will put a face on, an identity. We're going to look at the prophetic application to the Catholic Church of the letter of Thyatira. How the Catholic Church seems to get left behind after the rapture. How the Catholic Church is most likely Mystery Babylon. The harlot world religion of Revelation 17. And how the Catholic Church will be cast into the Great Tribulation. Now I want to say this right out the gate here. That the views that I'm about to share with you are not necessarily the same views of 412 Church or Pastor Tom Hughes. If you have any emails, correspondence, or comments you want to make, please send them to me at prophecydepot.com. My, web, my email is on there under the contact information. But uh, 412 Church is fair and balanced. They like to be able to give our views as to what we think certain interpretations are. We're certainly trying to warn the Catholic Church, not bash the Catholic Church tonight. Now I'm going to be teaching from my book, Apocalypse Road. It's book two in an end time series. The first book is called Revelation Road. It ends with the church age. Now these are novels with a commentary. So if you like the Left Behind series of Tim LaHaye, you'll appreciate the biblical commentary that's included inside of these books. And Revelation Road was book one. It ends with the church age. uh, Apocalypse Road, uh, Revelation for the Final Generation, picks up after the end of the church age and we enter into a gap period. Uh, before we get into the tribulation. I've talked about that here before. There's a picture of the gap right there because it's not the rapture that starts the tribulation period. It's confirmation of a false covenant. Now we're going to enter in the Catholic Church into this equation. We're presently in the church age. Uh, There's Pope Francis and he's the representation of the Catholic Church for our example here. Now when the rapture happens, does he go up? Does the Catholic Church go up? Or do they go over into the Great Tribulation? Is this the proof text we're talking about that they'll be cast into the sickbed of the Great Tribulation? Now, if they do go up and get caught up in the rapture, Pope Francis, the Cardinals, the Catholic hierarchy, it'll come as a great surprise to them. Because they're not looking for a pre-tribulation rapture at all. They, the Catholic Church teaches what's called amillennialism. Now, millennialism. Is the, and this is from the Catholic Answers Forum website, it gives us a good definition of what, what it is in their viewpoint, is the belief that the prophesied messianic kingdom of Jesus and the Old Testament is being fulfilled now in the church. It comes from the belief that Israel's promises are to be fulfilled in the church. Read that as the Catholic Church. That's replacement theology. We'll talk about that in a moment. Amillennialism is op- in opposition to premillennialism, which believes that Jesus will come back to reign for a literal 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. And we find out in Revelation 20, verse 4, there'll be a thousand-year messianic kingdom, which Jesus will reign with. I'm pre, pre-mill. I believe, pre-millennial. I believe Jesus is going to come, rapture his bride, and then you have a, a, a gap and a tribulation, and then he'll come for a second coming and destroy the Antichrist and the, his Armageddon armies, and he'll establish his thousand-year kingdom. That's different than what they teach. Now, uh, replacement theology in a short view of this is basically what they believe is that when the Jews rejected Jesus God rejected the Jews and although the Jews received many promises and prophecies they call them the Catholic Church would call them the children of the promises and prophecies Uh, those promises and prophecies now are gonna find fulfillment through the Catholic Church so they believe they're called the children of fulfillment so the fact is if they're gonna be the children of fulfillment in their teaching They cannot be taken from the earth. They have got to be on the earth so they can fulfill these promises. The reality is they will probably not make it through the tribulation as you see what I'm about to teach you tonight. Israel will survive the tribulation. Israel will be the the fulfillment of those prophecies. The Jewish state will survive. And they will withstand through the perils of the tribulation period. A remnant will. And Jesus will return for them and he will establish his kingdom. But just be clear on what they teach. Now, We're going to go ahead and uh, look at the multiple applications before we start with the study of Thyatira of the seven letters to the seven churches. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 has seven letters to seven churches. And at the time John wrote these, a couple thousand years ago, there were seven literal churches he was addressing in those letters with uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. So there were seven literal churches. But there is also an allegorical and a prophetic aspect that we we need to look at too with these seven letters. Uh, Allegorically speaking, at any given time throughout the church age, there'll be similar types of these churches that you would find at any given point throughout the church age. And prophetically speaking, it provides us a chronological outline of the church age back 2,000 years ago. Now we're 2,000 years later. We can actually, in retrospect, look back now and see how these letters seem to find application during certain periods of the church age. Now, a lot of people teach this teaching, that there's a prophetic application, Chuck Missler, myself and many others, uh, and there's the general consensus and here's a few proofs to why they should be considered prophetic. I'm going to show you the general consensus of what those time periods are in just a moment. So, the prophetic applications, so Thyatira, I just read, they will be cast into the sickbed of the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation, if we're looking at the literal time frame, that is during the Tribulation period. It's during the worst part of the Tribulation period. That's second three and a half years. So we see there's a prophetic application to that church. Then when it comes to Sardis, which we will we'll connect with the Protestant Reformation, it says that, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will know, not know the hour in which I will come upon you. So in other words, here's the church that when Jesus comes and raptures the true believers within the world and within, hopefully, in that church, there'll be some as well, the broad institution of the Protestant church, those left behind will be shocked. They'll feel like a thief came, where, where did our fellow congregants go? Where did some of our pastors go? That sort of thing. Then Philadelphia, it says, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those on the earth, which we commonly teach. Well, they'll be kept from the tribulation period. They'll be raptured. So we'll say, well, who, who are they in the time frames on the prophecies? And then lastly, another evidence is Laodicea, uh, that lukewarm church who says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So it doesn't sound like he's going to rapture them up. It sounds like there'll be a contingent of them that are vomited out of his mouth. They think they're wealthy in need of nothing, but he says they're blind, wretched, and naked. So here's, here's the prophetic applications that we'll be looking at. Now before we go and do our study and look at the time frames, let's say a prayer so that God will bless our time together as we touch upon this powerful stuff. Well we thank you for this opportunity tonight to be together to study your holy prophetic word. We just pray that everybody who watches it will understand that we're doing our best to discern it and disseminate it appropriately uh, that those would have eyes to see and ears to hear would be blessed by it and we ask your blessings on this time in Jesus name. Amen. Okay so what are those several periods of time prophetically speaking? The general consensus give or take a few centuries or years here. Ephesus would have been the apostolic period. Uh, that would be in AD 40 to 150 AD. Smyrna was that persecuted period of the church between AD 100 to 3, 312 roughly. Pergamos was from AD 300 to 600. This is when the Roman Empire was collapsing and they found it advantageous to embrace the, the Christian church for their own political purposes so they paganized it, they adulterated the church. And that's when you had a lot of Roman uh, false gods and teachings enter into the ca- into the church at that time, and then that mo- that version into the Catholic Church around 600 AD, and they, their their time span will actually go into the tribulation period. So from 600 AD, they're around today, and they go through the tribulation. Sardis, roughly the Protestant Reformation. We just recently celebrated the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation on around October 31st, just recently. Uh, they say roughly started around 1500. They will go through the tribulation period, it looks like, because it says they'll come upon them as a thief. Remember, I just read that. Sard, uh, that was Sardis. Philadelphia would be more like the missionary church around AD, 1800s. You know, the, the spreading of the gospel throughout the nations of the world happened quite a bit in the 1800s, 1900s. And then the Laodicea would be basically in the 1900s. On They will go through the tribulation period too, it appears. So that's your general outlay there. Uh, again these are all charts and things inside of my Apocalypse Road book so let's take a look at the verses we'll start with uh, verses 18 and 19 in Revelation chapter 2 and it says unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass in some translations that would be burnished bronze I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So basically what he's saying here is that he's commending them for their their works, their faith, etc. But their works especially, because it's in the last, in other words, in the latter days, the works are going to be even greater than they were in the beginning. He's not commending them for their faith being greater in the end. Remember, we're dealing now with a works-based church here. So it's interesting that he says that now, a quote from uh, and, and so certainly their works have been great. I mean, let's look through the years and give them credit. I mean, the way they've reached out, they've got there's literally uh, thousands of churches and cathedrals throughout over 190 countries. There's 1.2 billion Catholics. What, what can you say wrong about Mother Teresa right over taking care of the children and the orphans in India? Certainly we the Catholic Church has been one of the greatest to share their works with uh, throughout the world. Now, here's a quote from Tim LaHaye in his book called, I forget what it's called, I can't read it on my book here. <laughs> Revelation Illustrated and Made Plain, excuse me, on page 66. Here's what he says about Thyatira it comes from two words meaning sacrifice and continual. This introduces the heresy that has produced other false doctrines, that is, the Church of Rome denies the finished work of Christ, but believes in a continuing sacrifice, and I'll talk to you about that in what's called the Eucharist, that produces such things as sacraments and praying for the dead, burning candles, and so on. Now, he also says in the same book, on page 69, dealing with that blazing fire and burnished bronze, it denotes Christ looking with piercing judgment on that which has been, permit, has been permitted False teaching to creep in and mislead the servants. So that's the the thinking of those that first verse there, with respect to what does Sayatira mean, and the the position of the Lord is piercing judgment on this from by the blazing fire and the burnished bronze. Now, so the Catholic Church in their works. Here's a little something from their website, their related website, that says there's five reasons the catholic church is the true church now they believe they are the one true church okay and so they say it's the only church founded by jesus christ number 2 the only church that gave the world the bible the only church number 3 that has all the sacraments instituted by christ four the only church whose leadership can trace its authority to christ and the apostles and the only church the only true universal church on earth with a solid, unified doctrine and teaching. Now we're going to take a look at some of that doctrine and teaching in just a moment. Now they have been sustained throughout time through supernatural miracles. They, as a church, basically were uncontested as the one true church until around the 1500s, etc., and the Inquisition periods from the 1200s to the 1600s, where they would actually had Inquisitions where they would kill true believers and call them heretics. We'll talk briefly a little bit about that. But they had almost a century or so where they could go and basically no one could test their claims to be the one true church. So here's some of their dogmas and practices. Uh, They venerate the saints. They have relic worship. Now that relic worship is taking personal remains or personal effects and putting them into a tangible memorial and worshiping those relics of their saints, etc. There's Mary worship. We'll get into the Marian apparitions they pray the rosary confessional these are common things in catholicism they believe in purgatory indulgences dealing with purgatory That different zip code between heaven and hell transubstantiation dealing with the eucharist and the way they do their mass and there's eucharistic miracles and things that have happened throughout the church age through the catholic church so we'll talk about the eucharist because that's very important that'll come up in a future slide shortly and transubstantiation in the Eucharist, the tradition above scriptures, the Inquisitions we talked about—they believe in an Immaculate Heart of Mary and an Assumption of Mary. And I'm going to explain what those things mean. You need to get a handle on what they what they, they believe. Now, let's look at their catechisms, their teachings, their practices. This is a book that was issued called a Catechism for Adults. It's widely respected heavily been read by Catholics. It received the uh, what they call the Neal Obstat in 1951 and what they call the Imprimatura around 1958. The Neal Obstat is a Roman Catholic Church certification that a book is not objectionable on doctrinal grounds. The imprimatur is an official license by the Roman Catholic Church to print an ecclesiastical or religious book. So they accredited this book. Now here's what he says in their catechism, which are their teacher, teachings. Salvation requires more than accepting Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church can never teach error or be destroyed. Now I'm going to show you that that probably is not the case because it looks like they will be destroyed. The Pope can never make an error. Catholics must obey the Pope. Mortal sin can send you to hell. And here's what he says are some of those mortal sins. Refusing to accept all of God's teaching never praying, telling serious lies, not going to Mass, which is partaking of the Holy Eucharist, I'll get into that in a minute, on Sundays, getting very drunk, killing an unborn baby in the womb, all sins of sex, stealing something expensive, those types of things can send you to Hell. Those are mortal sins. Uh, You have to go into the Catholic Church and receive Mass. Like it says here, you've got to go to Mass and receive the Holy Eucharist on Sundays. So let's talk about the Eucharist for a minute. It means Thanksgiving. It's a ceremony commemorating the Last Supper in which the bread and wine are consecrated and consumed. We would call it our Mass, I mean our Communion, at a lot of the Protestant churches. Here's what the Global Catholic Network website says, the ETWN. Christ is really, truly, and substantially present in the elements of the Eucharist. We use the words really, truly, and substantially to describe Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist in order to distinguish our Lord's teachings from that of mere men who falsely teach that the Holy Eucharist is only a sign or a figure of Christ. Now, what they're saying there is that when the the priest or the pope or it has to be a Catholic priest, pope, cardinal, bishop, etc., a, a Protestant guy can't do it. You know, Pastor Tom couldn't do it. He when they do the communion, we call it a communion; they call it a mass, a Eucharist. The priest prays over it, and he's asking Jesus to come now and inhabit the wafer and the element. Physical presence come into it. They call it transubstantiation. So that's what they believe is happening. It's a mystical experience. Jesus actually comes and listens to them. Now, So basically in Ephesians 1.20 it says that Christ was raised from the dead, and, and he's then been seated at the right-hand side of, in heavenly places when he, when he rose from the grave. Isaiah 66 says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So what they're saying is that When they beckon him to come during the Mass, which they do every Sunday and of course on Easter and the holidays, um, they're expecting Christ to come mystically, miraculously, and inhabit those elements. Okay, so be clear on what what their Mass is. It's different than what you celebrate here at 412 Church and a lot of the uh, evangelical churches, non denominational churches do. We'll, We'll show that in a moment. So let's see what the Bible says about the thanksgiving, the Eucharist. Luke 22, verses 18 through 20. For I say to you, I, Christ, will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, likewise, in remembrance of me, he also took the cup of wine after supper, saying this is the cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So the way that I do Mass, communion, and Pastor Tom here is that we do it in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ on our cross. The finished work. Now the transubstantiation, the Christ having to come and inhabit the wafer in the Catholic Mass means he didn't finish the work on the cross. He's got to finish the work in every moment. as these In the thousands of churches and cathedrals on these Sundays Christ is coming at the beck and call of the anointed priest. And you've got to participate in that if you're a true Catholic. Now notice what he says up at the top. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's he's actually saying, I won't even drink of this wine until I set up the kingdom. But they're asking him to come and inhabit it. Okay, So I'm just saying that there's appears to be a disconnect here that we see pretty blatantly. So here's what a former Protestant, a very well-renowned Catholic apologist says about this Eucharist. Is Christ present in the Eucharist? In his book called Ecumenical Jihad, on pages 159 through 160, Peter Crift writes, what a point of division the Eucharist is. One of the two sides is very, very wrong. I said before that if Protestants are right, Catholics are making the terrible mistake of idolatrously adoring bread and wine as God. But if Catholics are right, Protestants are making the just as terrible mistake of refusing to adore Christ where he is and are missing out on the most ontological real union with Christ that is possible in this life, in Holy Communion. So you see, there's no middle ground here. You know, they're either grossly wrong we're adoring the mass the wrong way, the, the elements, or we're wrong. Okay? So just be clear on the distinctions there. Now the Eucharist is a real point of contention and it cost many people their lives during the Inquisition period. Uh, J.C. Ryle, the first Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, he writes and tells us about what was going on during the Inquisition. He could actually get a death penalty as a heretic for, this, for not believing in the transubstantiation process of the Eucharist, the presence of Christ in it. Here's what he writes, the, quote, the principal reason why our reformers were burned was because they refused one of the peculiar doctrines of the Roman Church. On that doctrine, in almost every case, hinged their life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused it, they must die. The doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ and the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. And I've got quotes in my book of people who did not admit to the fact that the real presence of Christ was... And they were killed. And these are in the Fox books as a martyr. For that very thing. Now, they were also killed for other reasons. But that was grounds for being killed. Not believing that Christ inhabits the wafers. That's how serious this this transubstantiation is. So we go on and we read a little bit further to the letter of Thyatira. In verse 20, Revelation chapter 2. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Oh, here comes the condemnations. Roman Catholicism, if we're correct on our timeline, prophetically speaking. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, the Virgin Mary, the Blessed Mother, also called the Queen of Heaven, Our Lady of Fatima. She's got all kinds of names within the Catholic Church. You allow that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, which would be Catholics, to commit fornication, which would be idolatry, spiritual idolatry, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, he's talking about a doctrine of Jezebel. Now, this is John writing this. Now, John was told that when Jesus was on the cross, he says, Jesus says to John, pointing to Mary, his mother, this is your mother. In other words, now you take her and treat her like a son. So now John's seeing this right here, this Jezebel thing. And it it was, you know, remember this worship of Mary is yet future within the Catholic Church from John's point of view. So John was informing us when you see this Jezebel type of person, which was the worst female character when you look at the Old Testament was Jezebel when you see that, see a repeat performance of that in a church during the church age then watch out. It's basically what he's saying here that this is this is notwithstanding because of this doctrine in Roman Catholicism if Thyatira is dealing with the Catholic Church. So let's compare Jezebel to the Queen of Heaven in the Catholic Church. Remember he said he was a prophetess. Well Jezebel was a queen in first Kings sixteen twenty nine through thirty one and is mentioned as such a queen of heaven in Revelation eighteen, a queen in Revelation eighteen seven. Now I've got all the verses up here, they're in my book, but I'll read some of them with you. Jezebel was idolatrous, first Kings twenty one, also in Revelation two, verse twenty, which we just were reading, and in Revelation seventeen, verse four, was a harlot in two Kings nine, verse twenty two, and Revelation seventeen one, five, and Revelation nineteen two. Killed the saints in Second Kings, verses chapter nine verse seven. We find out that she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus in Revelation seventeen six. Kills the saints. Killed the prophets. That's why Elijah ran from her. In First Kings eighteen four, we find out that also killed the prophets in Revelation eighteen verse twenty four. She is destroyed in Second Kings nine verses thirty three through thirty seven, and I'm going to show you in Revelation seventeen sixteen how the harlot world religion is destroyed and desolated by ten kings as I talk further. So there are comparisons between Jezebel and the Catholic Queen of Heaven, as they call her. Now, throughout the church age, the only female figure that you could actually pin the tail on the harlot, if you will, with Jezebel, would be the Mary worship of the Catholic Church. If you find another one, let me know. Now, let's talk about Mary because, listen, Mary was just the, the Lord's mother. I mean, I'm not, we're certainly not coming out here against Mary. We're coming about, out against what I believe is an imposter, a demonic imposter that the church of Thyatira is being con, condemned for. Here's what Mary said herself in Luke verses, chapter 1, verse 46-38, the Song of Mary, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. So she's admitting, very humbly in humility, that she needed a Savior. She's a sinner like the rest of us. And she was a lowly maidservant. And so this is an admit admission of her that she was no different than the rest of all of us that were sinners. Now they, the Catholic Church just takes this to an entirely different level. They believe she wasn't a sinner. They believed she was sinless, that she had an immaculate heart. This, this was a dogma, papal infallibility that came out. And it came out in uh, with December of 19, 1854. Now, uh, papal infallibility means that if the Pope says something, it doesn't matter if it's in the Bible or not, it becomes a dogma and you cannot contest it. Remember the catechism, the Pope cannot err. Okay, and you must do what the Pope says. These are the catechisms. So here's what we find from Pope Pius the Ninth in December of 1854, dealing with the Immaculate Conception dogma that was introduced into the Catholic Church. Far above all the angels and all the saints, so wondrously did God endow her, referring to the Queen of Heaven, Mary, with the abundance of all heavenly gifts poured from the treasury of His divinity, that His this mother. Is from the instant of conception, when she was born, not when Jesus was born, from the instant of her conception, ever absolutely free of all stain of sin. So they're saying she's sinless, she has an immaculate heart. Basically, another way that's been said is free from original sin by virtue of the foreseen merits of her son, Jesus Christ, born in a womb, but God acted upon her, Mary's soul, keeping it immaculate, sinless. They believe Mary was sinless not because Christ was in her womb, but because she was sinless when she was born, and in, her, in the womb of her mother, and that she was not a sinner, even though she just admitted she needed a Savior in Luke chapter 1. Well, that became a problem, because all of a sudden the argument came out from Romans 6.23 that, well, you know if Mary was sinless, then how did she die? Because it says in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord if she's a sinner she can possess no intercessory or redemptive powers which is what they believe, you know, they pray to her to intercede. And I'm going to show you some quotes that will blow you away that you can't even be saved without Mary involved in the process from some of the popes in the past. So be clear on what they're saying. Now that became a problem. So 96 years later Pope Pius XII comes out with the other dogma called the Assumption of Mary. Mary didn't die and here's what he says in November of 1950 that the Immaculate Mother of God, the ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. She went up like Jesus went up. She was assumed. She didn't die. Now, you will not find that in the Bible. And Mary, by her own admission, said, My soul magnified the Lord my Savior. So be clear on that. Well, it gets worse. Pope Leo Thirteenth, who was between 1878 and 1903 A.D., says this, O Virgin, referring to Mary, most holy, no one abounds in the knowledge of God except through thee. No one, O blessed mother of God, obtains salvation except through thee. That's a pope. That was even before the uh, assumption of Mary came out. So they had themselves in a real pickle from day one. Here's Pope Pius the X, back in 903 to 914 A.D. Just as no man goes to the Father but by the Son, so likewise no one goes to Christ except through his blessed mother. O Virgin Mary, most holy, no one abounds in the knowledge of God except through thee. No one, O Mother God, attains salvation except through thee. So do you, if you guys, we've got to ask yourself, do you guys think you've got to go through Mary to obtain salvation? We'll talk more about that in a little bit. That's what, the, these are popes. Well, it's interesting because it, uh, supposedly tradition holds that the rosary, you've heard the holy rosary that the Catholics are asked to recite, uh, was given to St. Dominic by an apparition of Mary in 1214 at the, at the Church of Pruyo. So she comes, whoever she is, this, I would call her an imposter, comes and says here I want you to start praying the rosary (laughs) interesting right that's how it was introduced way back when around 1214 AD and she has let me go back here she has 15 promises for those who faithfully recite the rosary you know you receive signal graces special protection armor against hell abundant mercies and it goes on you know you plenitude of God's graces these one really catch my eyes here your soul shall not perish. You have protection from misfortune. If you're having a misfortune in your life and you want protection from it, apparently if you pray the rosary faithfully, you have protection from that misfortune, from whoever this Mary, imposter, this Queen of Heaven is. Deliverance from purgatory. Who doesn't want to go to purgatory? Uh, That's really not in the Bible, folks. Uh, you can have high glory in heaven, obtain all you ask of, Mary, aid in time of need. Those are promises for those who faithfully recite. You can search these on Google, the 15 promises. Well, I, for one, along with this list of uh, samplings of modern contemporaries of ours, believe that the Catholic Church is the harlot of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17. J. Vernon McGee, J. J. Dwight Pentecost, Clarence Larkin, Grant Jeffrey, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, Charles Ryrie, Warren Wiersbe, Mike Gendron, David Hunt, David Reagan, Chuck Missler, Ed Henson, Arno Gableen, Chuck Smith, Jack Hibbs, John Ankelberg, John Phillips, just a few of the noted names, but widely respected prophecy teachers. Of course, all the, most of the Protestant reformers all believed that it was the Catholic Church, was the harlot of Revelation 17. Now I recently, a couple weeks ago, had a debate with Joel Richardson, who has introduced the thought the theory that Mecca is the city because it talks about a great mighty city. Uh, I believe it's Rome as did those other people I showed you where the harlot world religion is based. He introduced Mecca and it's the first time in church history to my knowledge that there's ever been a debate on Mecca as the central city of the harlot world religion. We're going to have a DVD on that. It will be coming out shortly and uh, you won't want to miss that. A lot of the things that we talked about in that three-hour debate I'm not not even able to share those here because of time permitting. But there's so many things that we went back and forth on very good points. Um, And I, I won't venture to say who won that debate, but you'll want to see the DVD. So here are some of the details of the harlot world religion. She rules over many nations, we'll find out in Revelation 17:15. She's headquartered in a great city. Is it Rome? Is it Mecca? Some people think it's New York City. Some people think it's rebuilt Babylon, Iraq. Some people think it's Jerusalem. The city is located upon seven hills. It panders to political leaders because we're told in Revelation 17:2 that uh, the harlot is with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. That would be a, a spiritual idolatry. It uh, becomes the opiate to the masses because it's, it says that she's got the inhabitants of the earth are drunk with her idolatry, her fornication. She's martyred believers in the past. She's drunk with the blood of the saints in Revelation 17, 6. She will martyr believers again in the future, says also drunk with the blood of the saints of the martyrs of Jesus also. She'll be hated by ten kings in Revelation seventeen sixteen. She'll be desolated by the ten kings in that same verse, and that then she will be replaced by the Antichrist system where no one will buy or sell unless they take the mark of the beast. So just a few details on the harlot world religion if you're not that familiar with Revelation chapter 17. So here's the big one here. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of earth. Revelation 17, 5 talks about that. Revelation 17, verse 6 says, I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints in the past, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus would it be yet future, after the rapture. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. I remember this, I told you this is where John was basically said, this is your, Jesus says, this is your mother. Now he's looking forward and he sees this apparent perversion of Mary who is drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus, if I'm correct on my assessment of the Catholic Church's involvement in this, with the inquisitions that happened between the 12th. Literally, they say, millions of of true believers were called heretics and killed between the 12th century and the 16th century. There's no exact number. The Catholic estimates are a lot lower than the Protestant estimates, but they all know that these people were being killed by the Catholic Church. They would adjudicate them and send them over to the secular authorities that would kill them. And if you didn't believe in the Eucharist, that was one of the reasons we talked about the presence of Christ into that. So she has a history of being drunk with the blood of the saints. Here's what, a quote from dealing with the drunk with the blood of the saints, the interpretation from an American theologian called uh, Albert Barnes in his Barnes Bible Commentary. He was in 1798 to 1870. He says the meaning here, dealing with Revelation 17.6, is that the persecuting power referred to had shed the blood of the saints and that it had, as it were, drunk with the blood of the slain. No one need say how applicable this has been to the papacy of Roman Catholicism. Let the blood in the valleys of Piedmont, the blood sh- shed in the low countries of Duke of Alva, and the blood shed in Inquisitions temp- testify. Okay, This is historical. And this guy was, goes back between 1798 and 1870 and gives us his scholarly interpretation. Blood of, that's what the blood of the saints. Tim LaHaye, we'll go back to his uh, Revelation Illustrated and Made Plain book, page 285. Here's what he says about the drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, yet future. The complete tyranny of the Tribulation period is seen in the fact that during the first three and one-half years, the ecumenical church, the harlot of Revelation 17, is so powerful, she dominates Antichrist and kills all believers, the martyrs of Jesus, who refuse to participate with her. During the second half of the Tribulation period, it will be the Antichrist and the false prophet who kill those who refuse to worship his image and receive his mark. Two periods killing crusades of Christians, the harlot drunk with the martyrs of Jesus, and then the Antichrist who will replace her system, and the 10 kings Desolator who will behead people, Revelation 20 verse, in Revelation 20, for not taking his mark. And so two different killing campaigns after the rapture. One sequences after the other, first the harlot, then the Antichrist. So here's a quote from Arno C. Gablein. who is a Methodist minister in his book called The Revelation, Our Hope. He wrote this in 1915. And it's on pages 99, a couple quotes from 101 and 102. Quote, When the true, true church is caught up, raptured, the Roman Catholic church will see a great revival. For a long time she has been stripped of her temporal power. She once had, but it will be restored to her. And she was drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So that John wondered with a great wonder, such were her cruel, wicked, satanic deeds in the past. He goes on to say, It could never be true of the literal Babylon. Remember, it's Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Nor does it mean, as Romish expositors of this book claim, pagan Rome, for if it meant that persecutions under the Roman Empire, John would have not wondered with great wonder. And the last page of her Roman Catholicism, cruel, horrible persecutions, is not yet written. When she comes to power again, she will do the same thing. This is what he is predicting in his interpretation of those verses. Now, these are people who are much closer to the Inquisitions back in time. Historical quotes, that's why i like to include them. They, they were very much aware of what was going on back in the Inquisitions. Now we're going to shift our attention to these supernatural events going on. The Mary apparitions. Uh, this impostor shows up at various places and has been throughout. These are real phenomena. And they're accompanied with miracles and things, and I'll read you some quotes on that. She showed up in 1531 in Guadalupe, Mexico. Lords France in 1858. I mean, this isn't recent, although there have been some recent ones. Fatima, we just celebrated the 100-year anniversary this last October of when she came to those three shepherd kids. And then we will focus on in just a moment. That was in Egypt, in a suburb of Cairo. Over a Coptic church, 18, that lasted for two years, in 1968 19, through 1970. And then we've had one even more recent in Merzouga. These are notable. They make pilgrimages to these places, especially Fatima, and Guadalupe, Mexico, and Lords France, etc. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands. It's a big industry. Here's what I, a quote that I have from my Apocalypse Roadbook, dealing with this, dealing with Zeitoun. For more than a year, starting on the eve of Tuesday, April 2nd, 1968, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared in different forms over the domes of the Coptic Orthodox Church named after her at Zaitun, Cairo, Egypt. The late Father Constantine Musa was the church priest at the time of these apparitions. Here's a quote from him. The apparitions lasted from a few minutes up to several hours and were sometimes accompanied by luminous heavenly heavenly bodies shaped like doves and moving at high speeds. The apparitions were seen by millions of Egyptians and foreigners. Among the witnesses were Orthodox, Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, Jews, and religious people from all walks of life. The sick were cured, and blind persons received their sight, but most importantly, large numbers of unbelievers were converted. This is miraculous, folks. This is a big deal. This is why they believe this is the mother of Jesus. Here's a quote from the book Queen of All, excellent book by Jim Tetlow, Roger Oakland, and Brad Myers, subtitled The Marian Apparitions Plan to Unite All Religions Under the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Brad Myers, by the way, does an enormous amount of research for me. Uh, He's come up with so many of these quotes that you've been hearing from me. And uh, this is what they say in their book, you can get this on Kindle, on Amazon Kindle, the book called Queen of All. Numerous healings and miracles have been reported at apparition sites around the globe in addition the apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary, has repeatedly announced that her most significant signs and wonders are yet future. There's more to come. She admits that she has not revealed her full glory to the whole world. She predicts heavenly signs and wonders that the whole world will soon witness. There's more to follow. Just think after the rapture. One apparition, seen by millions, Muslims, Jews, Protestants, at a time when the world is concerned about their uncertain futures. Just what happened to all those people that just miraculously disappeared? One apparition would blow people away because that's a time when there's no restraint on Satan's deception. It'll, it'll come out with all signs and lying wonders, Second Thessalonians. The supernatural will be the natural. The paranormal will be the new normal. And here comes Mary, who's promising her greatest works are yet to come. Remember that the Catholic Church is being faulted for a doctrine of Jezebel, which we might make the connection here. Also, I want to introduce you to something we're going to be giving away at our table out there, free. Come out there. Oh, let me say this first before I say that. There's another quote regarding, this is a quote from a visionary, from the apparition through the visionary regarding the best works yet future. She says, I wish to also tell you that before my apparitions end completely, they're not over. I shall be seen by every denomination and religion throughout this world. This is spectacular. I will be seen among all people, not for just a moment, but everyone will have a chance to see me as I appeared in Zaytun. Two years, 1968 to 1970. I shall appear again so many people may see me, pray, and help my plans to be realized, not just here, but throughout the world. She's promising to come back. And she's promising to be seen by millions throughout the world, by every denomination. Her best works are yet future, according to the Queen of All quote. So out at our table, uh, it's called The Coming Global Transformation. It's an audio drama. It's in an MP3 format. Uh, Brad Myers, Jim Tetlow, and myself put this together. We're going to give it away to you for free. It's a little. Uh, it's audio drama that you can put in your DVD player or your computer. It's, it's not a CD per se. But I want you to come over to the table and have this because it's one of the best works I think there is out there on the end times, done with the rapture, the Middle East wars, the coming harlot world religion, the UFO deception, things like that that I believe will be part of the end times scenario, prophetically speaking. So the apparition has some obsessions. She wants to be a co-redemptress, a mediatrix, and an advocate, meaning a mediatrix. In other words, I want to mediate between a man and his Savior. You must go through Mary if you want to get through Jesus. What a convenient place, if Satan's behind this, to slip right in. Because that's going to cause havoc between a personal relationship between a person and their Lord. You've got to go through this mediatrix. Co-redemptrix. Not quite the same thing as being a co-redeemer. The Catholic Church has a little definition from that, but it's not far from it. She's obsessed with Catholics praying the rosary and receiving those 15 promises. She's obsessed with creating world peace through her immaculate heart. Remember, she's supposedly sinless. She wants to consecrate the world through her immaculate heart. That means consecrate people. Consecration means set something apart for a sacred thing, meaning to the Catholic Church. She wants to consecrate Russia to her immaculate heart. That's a whole other topic. And, and the importance of the Eucharist in salvation. We talked about the presence of Christ in the elements so let's read a little further because this is where it gets dicey to say the least and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality we're still dealing with that doctrine of Jezebel here, that spiritual idolatry and she did not repent the Catholic churches had time to repent from this indeed I will cast her into a sickbed with those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So, going into the Great Tribulation, along with the others that are committing adultery with this harlot world religion. Let's look at that again. A little further, verse 23. Cast into the sickbed of the Great Tribulation, unless they repent, which they took time and did not repent. And I will kill her children with death. This is a letter to a church book. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. God is just. This is a letter to a church that's going to be cast into the sickbed of the great tribulation because they've got a bad doctrine of Jezebel and the children will be killed. And we're not talking literal children. So let's look at this as my proof verse what I started with earlier. Those verses, Revelation 2, verse 22 and 23. Behold, I will cast her, the harlot world religion, into the sickbed of the great tribulation, which is the second half of the trib period, and I will kill her children with death. Now we're going to park on that for a minute and understand what that might be meaning. Now the the words used for the great tribulation, let's be clear, are we talking about a time frame that will show up four times in the New Testament? Megas the is what they are. And three times in Matthew 24, verse 21, Revelation 2, 22, and Revelation seven fourteen. it is referring to that second half of the tribulation period. So I'm looking at this very literally. I'm not gonna allegorize this. It looks like if the Catholic Church is represented prophetically to the letter of Thyatira, they will miss the rapture, they're not expecting it, they will be left behind. Mary Apparition is gonna show up and point to the Catholic Church, and they will become the harlot world religion, and they will ultimately be cast into the sickbed of the tribulation, and God will kill her children in there. now. In the Bible, when it talks about the children of Israel, it's not talking, in most cases, about the little children of Israel. It's talking about the Israelite people. We're talking about the Catholic congregants, the faithful. Okay? I mean, this is just, dear viewers, this is just my interpretation. So just take, you know, do your own homework on this thing. But if this is literal, it's very serious. Here's what John Gill says about this Interpretation. He was the first major writing Baptist theologian back in 1697 and 1771. And I will kill her children with death, her popes, cardinals, priests, Jesuits, monks, friars, and all that join in the Romish apostasy. They shall be killed with death. There shall be an utter extirpation of them in God's own time. So I'm not making this up. This is what this guy saw too, several hundred years ago. But why would God kill the children of Thyatira? Well, because they must deserve it. He's a just God. Because, apparently, it's the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. We read that in Revelation 17, 6. That must be why. that as a possible reason. But how? How will God kill the children of Thyatira? They're going to be cast into the sickbed of the Great Tribulation. When we find out that the Catholic Church, or, or the harlot world religion, will be desolated in Revelation 17, 16, and 17 by the ten kings who align themselves with the Antichrist. And it says, "In the ten horns, which you would say is kings, which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And at that same time, things that are going on are, are devastating throughout the world, the trumpet judgments. You know, you've got Revelation events in Revelation 18 and excuse me, Revelation 8 and 9, where one-third of the trees, the seas, sun, moon, and stars are struck. Locusts are tormenting men for five months. There's a 200 million man, probably demonic army, killing one-third of mankind. This is bad times. That's the sickbed of the Great Tribulation. Desolated by the Ten Kings, cast into the Tribulation. Whoever survives the desolation of the Ten Kings got to deal with this stuff, the trumpet judgment. And the bowl judgments are to follow. So let's go ahead and read a little further as we finish our Thyatira study. He goes on to say in verse 24 of Revelation 2, But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, that Jezebel doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, now that's a powerful word, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden. So what is being said here is that this doctrine of Jezebel, probably dealing with Mariology, is from the pits of hell. Excuse my French. From the depths of Satan. Now, I mean, not the surface of Satan. We're talking about the depths, the deep-seated things of Satan. Has infiltrated a church to a point where they will be cast into the sickbed of the tribulation, great tribulation. So he goes on to say, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule with them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the the Spirit says to the churches. So the overcomers of Thyatira, the ones who don't find themselves involved in this false doctrine, in this bad teaching, probably much from the past who overcame this bad teaching throughout the world. Hopefully those in the future who get out from it. But the overcomers, let's talk about the overcomers for a minute. How do you become an overcomer? Okay? So we find out that this is the way you, over, you become an overcomer. You learn the true gospel, which is in First Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I have also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Not according to the popes, but according to the Scriptures. So, he died for our sins. He thus is our Savior. When he first came, he fulfilled estimates are 353 prophecies according to the Scriptures. And he was buried. He died a sacrificial death. Remember the wages of sin are death? He was sinless, but he died on our behalf. A sacrificial death. And he rose again on the third day, again according to the scriptures. Now that is critically important, the full gospel, that he rose again on the third day. Because, you know, you've all memorized John 3:16, That God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. So he validated by rising from the grave that promise, eternal life, through Jesus Christ. So, but how do you obtain that? Well, what does Scripture say? Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins and was buried and rose from the grave. It doesn't say anything in there about through Mary you will be saved. You confess that Jesus is your Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, verse 10, 11 says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believe on believes on him will not be put to shame. So, as I conclude, you know, this has been a study that you probably not have touched upon in Thyatira on the level that we have. And it's very powerful dealing with the possible scenario of the Catholic Church being connected to Thyatira being cast in the sickbed of the Great Tribulation because of future events that that dictate that from a just God. Um, And again, we're just trying to basically alert ourselves and Catholics to the fact that this could be applicable to them. And we're very near to the period of time where Christ is going to come get his bride, which they're not being taught at the Catholic churches to be on the lookout for. And then shortly thereafter, through a gap and through a tribulation period, everything gets bad from that point forward. So now if you have not become an overcomer yourself and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you in this room or live stream watching this, Um, this is how you do it. You confess with your lips that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Make him your Lord. If you haven't done that, it's a gift from God. You need your faith to put it in there, but it's a gift from God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And I pray that you do do that now, because today is the day of salvation.